Hello, and welcome to Dear Franny. I am your host, Francesca Hoagie. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a special shout out today to, first of all, the people who have written reviews for the podcast. I so appreciate you. I see you. Thank you so much. And I also want to give a shout out to the listeners all around the world because I'm seeing downloads in India and Russia and Italy and Sweden and Brazil and New Zealand and Canada and Australia. And it's just really, really cool and exciting and a little bit surreal that people around the world are listening to my little podcast. But I appreciate you so, so so much. And speaking of appreciation, today I have an interview with the person that I appreciate probably more than anyone in the world, and that is my mother, Joyce Hoagie. And she shares with us today just oh, you know, about her life and growing up in rural Alabama and moving to New York in 1963 and the very scandalous story of how she met my father and just so many other things. So she's very wise. She's very wonderful. Please enjoy my interview with my mama, Joyce Hoagie. Mama. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This is exciting. <laughs> it is, right? <laughs> I just, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I just had this thought. I'm like, I need to interview my mom. And thank you for being willing. I'm a real good guy, you know? I know you are. You're a great guy. And you're very modest, which I also, <laughs> it's a wonderful quality. I love it. <laughs> You know, I, this is actually, I don't know if you remember, this is the second time I've interviewed you. Yes. I did that. I did a video interview with you for Huffington Post some years ago. Up at the cases. Yes. In Providence and Rhode Island. Those are our other family for those of you who are listening, the case family. Yeah. So this is the first time we've gotten to sit down in this kind of formal way. And I don't know, mama, you're just a person who you are, you know, you have a lot of wisdom. There are a lot of people who turn to you for advice and guidance in various parts of their lives. And those are the kinds of people that I like to interview on this show. So, and you're my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Where are you? How are you? What's going on? Well, I am in New York. I live in the Bronx, New York, and I have been, I guess you could say, sheltering since this whole pandemic started. I do get out once a day for a walk in the mornings with my mask and with my daughter, Jana, your sister. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Frankly, I don't do anything without Jana. Yeah. Because... She is taking really good care of me. And I'm sensitive to the fact that my letting her have that responsibility, because I really didn't give it to her. She just sort of took it on. Yeah. Well, that's very much who she is. Yes. Yes. And I just know that it helps her to perform in her duties because she's working. She's working from home and has been since March 11th. And it takes pressure off of her from her work because that's stressful too. Yeah. But to know that I'm going to be doing what she's suggesting and what she's accompanying me with, I think is very comforting for her. So I, that's what I'm doing. You know, you're even, this is very classic for you. Like you're always someone who you really think about how your actions affect other people and you know, because you're saying like, well, you're yes, John is being there for you. And that's great. And she's taking good care of you. But you're like, but also it gives her more confidence and allows her to do her job better. Like you're <laughs> always looking at that other angle. And I guess like, where did you learn to do that? Because that's not something that you saw. Did you see that modeled growing up? You know, I, I did not. And I don't know where I learned it. It's just a way of making me feel better about what I am doing. Because there's always two sides to every story. So somewhere along the line, it just kicked in with me that if one thing is happening, then there's something else that's either driving it or styming it. So I try to look for that and not so much in a um, aware stage, you know, it's just an inner feeling that I have that I really would like to know what's going on on either side. So I guess that's where it comes from, because I absolutely uh, 
was not raised that way. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you just kind of briefly describe how you were raised for people who are listening? Let them tell them a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? How'd you grow up? I was born in the deep south. Deep. Deep, deep south. (laughs) A little town called Leroy, Alabama. And I am the youngest of nine children. We were, my oldest siblings always tell me, used to tell me, they don't say it so much anymore. Oh, we were very poor. And by the time you came along, things weren't as bad as they were with us. And that's probably very true. Mm -hmm. But I grew up fairly comfortable, but in a very rigid household. My um, parents literally didn't let me do much of anything for myself on my own. Mm -hmm. Do it our way or no way. They exposed us to educational venues. My mom was very adamant about that, even though neither of them ever got through elementary school. Wow. Sixth grade was their absolute last years of schooling. Hmm. Do you know, what, what do they do after that? Because, you know, what are they, a lot, you're 11 years old at that point. What did they do? Do you know what their lives were like? Like, so when you stopped going to school at that age during that time. Right. I mean, we're talking like, well, I guess that would, that would have been 1920. Or earlier? Yeah, it was earlier. What happened was my mother's parents, my maternal grandparents, farmed. And they had amassed a lot of property. So they they did a lot of farming. And it was mostly for survival, not so much for um, profit. Yeah. And um, my mom was the eldest of 14. So she was always in the responsible position. And I remember that she got married at age 17 because she said that she was tired of taking care of babies. Right. Like her siblings. All her little siblings, yeah. But what's so ironic is she got married in 1919, I think it was. And in 1922, she had her first child, my brother Joe. So she was starting to have children right along with her own mother's children. So a lot of her children are around the same age as her siblings. That's so crazy. So she sort of jumped out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. Yeah. But it was a big household, big family. And I guess they pretty much got along. I think Mm -hmm. they had a lot of resentment from having to work so hard. And my mom, being the more responsible person, always worked the hardest. Mm. She worked harder than your dad? My dad took a job at, it was construction, at the, what we call a cement plant. There was a little town there near us that had this unique limestone that this cement company had contracted to break up that limestone and put it on a barge and ship it down the Tom Bigby River to New Orleans where they made cement. Hmm. So that's what he did. And mom pretty much uh, ran the household and took care of the farming chores. And as her children grew up, she put them into that farming scenario. As my brothers, because there were seven boys, as they became of age, they joined the service. And I think that was more to get away from all that hard work of farming. Yeah. How did you like farming? Well, as I said, by the time I came along, there wasn't that heavy concentration on farming, even though I did a lot of it. I picked cotton, worked in the garden. I harvested crops from the garden. Yeah. And my mom was very progressive. She raised every kind of poultry that you could imagine. Turkeys, ducks, Mm -hmm. geese, chickens, guinea hens. She really was very progressive. And she was the kind of person that would read magazines and expose us to those kinds of things. You know, so it it really was sort of a fun household. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a fun household because it was a lot of learning going on there. So what year were you born? I was born in 1943. Okay, I knew that, but I wanted you to say it. You know, Deep South, Leroy, Alabama, so it was segregated. And actually, you never lived. You you were 20 when you left Alabama, right? 19, yes. 19. And Alabama was still segregated there. So your entire childhood and upbringing was during segregation. So what was that like for you? Well, and this is sort of a conflict because we always had a lot of property and we really didn't depend on anyone 
for our well-being. And that was a justification that I always use, that if a person didn't have much, they were more susceptible to being discriminated against. Mm -hmm. My mother's father was um, the product of a white man and a woman of Cherokee heritage. So he essentially looked white when he moved into the community. And he was treated very much as a white person. Oh, that's how we got all that land. Pretty much. I was wondering about that. He had amassed over 200 acres of, mm-hmm. of land. Did he pass? Like, was he pretending to be white or? Nope. My grandmother was, I believe, descended of slaves and she was nothing near mm-hmm. white. <laughs> they were like. Chocolate and vanilla. <laughs> yeah. 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 And he really did not pretend, you know, he didn't pass, try to pass, but he was just treated with that respect. Mm, that colorism, like, yeah. Yeah, because he, he moved into the uh, county from another part of the state and people really didn't know who he was. They just saw mm-hmm. him as a white man. <laughs> yeah. So we had a lot of protection in that regard. So even though we saw the signs of white only, black only. Colored only. They said colored back then, right? Didn't say black. (laughs) I don't remember being a part of that discriminatory behavior. You were very um, self-sufficient and, you know, I know you you had your land. And it's also very rural. So it wasn't like you had a lot of interaction with other people at all. But I guess, but in terms of how did you feel about the fact that you went to the colored school and you knew there was a white school and wasn't the white school actually closer to home than the colored school? It was, yes. So how did you feel about that? Like, how far did you have to go to school? Well, my father purchased two school buses and my brothers drove the school buses. Yeah. So we always had transportation to school. And because it was an accepted practice that there was a white school and there was a a black school and (laughs) there were white churches and black churches. It wasn't something that weighed on me. Mm -hmm. I never felt the need. It just felt normal. Yeah. I never felt the need to integrate or, oh, why can't I go to that school? Because I was very happy in my school. Everybody at that school were very happy. Our teachers were outstanding and just so caring that we didn't really think we were missing so much. Mm. The only thing that, and I think about this now, but didn't think about it then at all, is that we got secondhand books. You knew the books had been used Mm, mm -hmm. at other schools and we got them. But we learned from them. And that was essentially all that mattered to us. Mm-hmm. So when you were growing up, did you plan on staying in Alabama forever? Because it sounds, I mean, you speak very f- fondly of your childhood, but then you also still left when you were 19 and went to New York City. And that's where you've been ever since. <laughs> I left because there really, in my mind, there were no opportunities to advance. Mm-hmm. And I guess my parents really did not want me to leave home. That was just like <laughs> a slap in the face. But they had exposed me to so much that it wasn't happening there in, in Alabama for me. And I always had the urge to explore mm-hmm. for more, you know. Yeah. My older brothers, one brother who lived in Chicago, my parents put me on a train and let me go visit with him for a while. When my sister-in-law had their first child, I was allowed to do that. So my eyes were just opening to so many, not so much opportunities, but just so many other things going on in the world. Yeah. Other than the rural life of... Leroy, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. And the, the um, I guess by the time I was doing that, there were only about three of us, my siblings, Still at home. That was still at home. Mm -hmm. The others had, you know, gone away. They'd married, you know, living other places. And I got to visit Mm -hmm. them and go, wow, this is wonderful. This is a Mm -hmm. place other than trees and dirt roads. (laughs) What is this thing? Yeah. I question though, but because, but you still, you chose New York and none of your siblings were in New York. So you still were, you know, really striking out on your own, though there are these other places that you could have gone to. So. So why New York? What drew you to New York? 
specifically? What drew me to New York, there was some, uh, this one family of girls that lived in the town who had gone to New York on babysitting jobs. Mm. And when I was flailing around and saying, I really do have to leave Leroy, there's just nothing here for me. One of them said, why don't you come to New York? And I said, hmm, that sounds okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) New York was just like the... (laughs) It was like a poison stone for, for, as far as my parents were concerned. And they just refused to send me. They said, no, you can't, you can't go. It's a terrible place. Well, this neighbor... Had they ever been there? No. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. But I was just, just <laughs> Of course not. Just reading and yeah. hearing, you know. Mm-hmm. But my um, neighbor said, she said, well, I'll send you your bus fare. And she did. <laughs> And that's how I came to New York. Wait, I can't believe your parents let you go, though, even when you had the money. I guess they couldn't physically tie you up and stop you from going, but I bet they tried. They did. (laughs) Do you remember how much the bus fare was? Oh, geez, no. (laughs) Uh, Less than $50, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would guess, right? I mean, yeah. it wasn't anything that my parents could not have afforded to do. Yeah, yeah, they just didn't want you to go. No, I was just curious, just just out of a you know anthropological curiosity. Okay, so let's jump ahead and let's get into your love story. So tell the story of when you first met uh, Ed Hokey. <laughs> I think the last time I told this story was the day that Ed passed away because the nurses sat with me and they just wanted me to tell them the story because I was sitting there holding Mm. his hand. And so a girlfriend of mine and I were going out. We were sort of hanging out, lots of single girls. And um, we decided to go to this pub, this tavern. And um, while we were there, we ran into a friend of mine who was a photographer. And we started, we stroke up a a chat. And he had to leave because he um, was going to photograph some show at a a ballroom. And he says, I'll be back. So you you just stay here. So after he left, there were two guys that came in and saw us and offered to buy us drinks. And we said, sure. And we sat and talking. (laughs) And while we're talking, this man walks in wearing this leather jacket. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a worn leather jacket, you know, when the leather gets soft and pliable, you know? Yes, mother. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this man knew the two guys that were sitting with us. And they said, oh, come on over and sit with us. Come, come. And so he was very polite. And he says, oh, no, no, you're together. So I says, sure, come on over, you know? And it's the sound of that jacket and he's walking. (laughs) Somehow, I don't know why I still remember that. I've heard you talk about this this jacket before. It's just nuts. But anyway, he came and he sat with us and we were just talking and drinking. And he finally suggested that we go dancing. So off we went dancing. He had this little Mustang. We drove up to Harlem to Small's Paradise where they had live band and dancing. And we danced just for hours, you know. And the guys got tired and they left. But Ed, your dad, was still raring to go. (laughs) And he said, oh, I know this after hour place where we can go. They have another good band. So we went and it was too crowded. So as we were leaving, he said, I know another one. So (laughs) Goodness, Eddie Hoagie. (laughs) Just in these streets. So we came out and we saw a woman hailing a cab and he stopped and asked her where was she going and she told him and she happened to be going home, which was in the same building of this after hours place that we were going to. So he said, oh, come on, go with us. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's so New York, those crazy coincidences. Yeah. <laughs> we just wound up dancing, dancing. And he would repeat this to me sometimes. He says, somehow, he said, at one point we were dancing and something told me, take a look at this girl, you know? Oh. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Because my girlfriend was, um, I guess we were both attractive women, but she 
probably was more attractive than I was, you know? I don't know about that, mother. I'm going to need to see some photographic evidence of this alleged. Maybe not. (laughs) The thought was that maybe he was uh, leaning more toward her in terms of paying more Mm. attention to her. But as we were Mm -hmm. dancing, he just said, something said, take a look at this girl, you know? And we just kept dancing. And anyway, at about 5.30 in the morning... We were all danced out. So he took us home, but he took her home first. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I don't know. Okay. You want to tell me the real story? (laughs) This is my, I am listening to my mother tell me about the night she met my father, went bar hopping, dancing until 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) So he took, I'll call her Mary, home. So it's daylight now. And I had a dog Mm -hmm. at the time. And I said, well, I got to walk the dog. He said, oh, I'll go with you. So I went up, I got the dog and we came out and walked the dog and we talked and talked. And as you know from your father, he talks nonstop. But he asked if he could see Mm -hmm. me again. So I agree. And the rest, I guess, is history. (laughs) (laughs) It really is history. I mean, you were together from then, from that, really from that first day, the first night, right? He just turned out to be the most interesting person. He was 17 years older than me. That's the really scandalous part. (laughs) That was... If I had ever come home with a man who was 17 years older than me, how would you have reacted to that? You know what? I um, probably would have been suspicious. Mm -hmm. I would have been suspicious, but I would also have looked at the man because this is pretty much what happened with my parents when they met him. My mother was livid. My dad was much more forgiving. They came to visit at one point, you know, and Ed was taking them around, you know. But Dad was just really enchanted with him. It took my mom many years that she could be completely accepting of him. And Mm -hmm. that goes, that's a long story, too. That goes back a, a, a while. But if you came home with someone that was 17 years older, I would definitely go, hmm. But I would also look at both you and he to see there's some commonalities there, you know, that there's something there Mm -hmm. that uh, one can enhance the other. And many times we would go jazz clubs or he'd be talking because he loved jazz. And he was always talking about jazz artists. And he says, you know, don't you remember, sweetheart? I go, no, I wasn't born then. Right. Oh, my gosh. You know what? It's interesting, though, because the two of you never you didn't seem to have an age difference. Like, you you know, he was incredibly useful. And so he easily just kind of had the energy of someone who was 20 years younger than him at any given age. So I think that's the thing. I think if if you had looked like, oh, why is she with that old man? That would have felt like that would have been different. But you guys just looked like you went together. He absolutely was as comfortable with me as I was with him. And we just had so much in common, except when he'd asked me about something that had happened 30 years Before ago. Before you were born. Or he's telling you about fighting in World yeah. War II, and you're like, you are old. <laughs> I was just born in 43. <laughs> Come on already. Oh, my goodness. I remember I was saying to someone, like, I was saying, had mentioned to someone that my dad was a World War II vet, and they're like, did you mean your granddad? I'm like, nope. <laughs> my father was born in 1926, and he was... Okay, so, all right, so, yeah, the rest kind of history. Um, actually, I want how soon did you move in together? So scandalous. Oh, it was scandalous. It was six months. It was that long? Are you just saying that for the podcast? I don't think it was that long. No, 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 no. I think it was about six months. Yeah. Okay. And then how long were you together before you got married? A year and a half. Okay. It's so interesting because, you know, the the, t- the thought of the two of you, like, out all night on the town. I mean, I can picture it, actually, <laughs> because, you know, you, you guys always like to have fun, but you never went out like that ever, you know, by the time I came along. We had all danced out. Yeah, I, I didn't. <laughs> but, oh. 
The dancing was only in the living room at that point, but... And then we had some mouths to feed. We had to make our choices. <laughs> right, 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 right. But, oh my God, it's just so crazy. It's so crazy to think. I wish I had just like video footage of the two of you from, from that time, but it was very scandalous for you to be... I mean, especially the way you were raised for you to be living with your boyfriend in New York City. I mean, I can imagine, I can only imagine. Oh, gosh. Scandalized everyone in the family was. You were a rebel. Pretty much. I just rebelled in all ways. You know, I was growing up, I had Mm -hmm. all this long, beautiful hair. Just, I had so much hair. Sometimes my sister would say, Joyce would, she would like squat down and her hair would touch the ground. She had so much hair. And I came to New York. It was your crowning glory. So you cut your hair so short. I love that. I love that you did that, especially that time. And, you know, there are people who are listening to this who definitely understand the significance <laughs> of that. But for people who don't, let me just give you a really quick, <laughs> like a quick primer on black people and oh, hair <laughs> historically. And, you know, just the real, you know, obsession with hair and having long hair and quote unquote good hair, which I hate that expression, that term, because it's so just based in white supremacy and whatever. But your hair, because you have, as they, I mean, how often did people comment on your hair when you were growing up? Oh, gosh, they always commented on my hair. That was like, you were known for it. (laughs) To the point that nobody, I didn't think they saw anything else but hair, you know. And last year, quick aside, when I went down to uh, help start this organization to support our now closed school, one of the girls that was um, working with me there, she said, oh, she says, when you used to come home, she said, oh, your hair. She said, oh, I loved your hair so much. You know, she said, oh, I wish I had your hair. And this is, oh my goodness. this is what people talked about, you know? This is what people talked about. It's so crazy. Because I've even heard people, you know, at different family gatherings um, through the years, people will all, like, Someone will always inevitably say, oh, Joyce, oh, she used to, you should have just seen the hair on Joyce. Oh, she just, oh, she has some good hair. Oh, she got some good hair. And I'm like, oh, God. Actually, I remember growing up and wishing, I was like, why can't I have hair like that? Because I did not inherit your hair. People used to say, they says, you girls don't have hair like you. And I go, yeah, so (laughs) what am I supposed to do about that? You know, the fact that you did not really internalize that because so many, and whether it's, you know, it's, we're talking about hair, but this could be, you know, so many different things for different people that you just get so much attention for. And, you know, it might mean, you know, maybe for some people it's like you were a really good athlete and that's, you know, became your identity or, you know, you were really good looking and that became your identity or, you know, something like that. And it's, it can be really, really hard for people to separate who they really are from that, that superficial thing that people associate with them or that identity that people. So, so for you to grow up the way you did, have this whole thing with your hair, just like basically another, another character in your family. (laughs) And because your sister also didn't have hair like yours. And then to like move to New York and then literally chop all of your hair off is like a really, it's really rebellious. I mean, there are women today who don't have that experience who would still never cut their hair off. They'd be like, no, I can't do that. You know? So that just took a lot of courage. Well, I think about it sometimes. I had the need to make my own identity. You know, I had to be me. (laughs) You know, you hear that song. I gotta be me. I really did. People say, oh, you cut your hair. I'd go home to visit and people would be outraged and they go, oh, your hair. I said, you know what? It'll grow back. It's just hair. And it did. You had lots of hair different times of your life. Yes, yes, yes. Just kept growing. But yeah, that was... Oh my uh, gosh, so funny. Yeah, that, that was a real thing. And people still talk about it between the hair and your sing. Oh, do you still sing? And I go, no, I don't. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I know. We could, I don't know. We, we could talk about your singing <laughs> career too. That's like a whole other thing. Wait, I want to... Yes, my mother used to be a jazz singer. Well, you were more of like an R&B singer. Do you ever think... Okay, okay, now I want to ask you about your singing career briefly. Do you ever look back and think, oh, you know, I wonder if I had stuck with it, if I really could have made it? Or do you just think, I, I don't, I'm glad I didn't make it. That's not a life that I wanted. Well, I think I can, can definitively say that's not a life that I wanted. It was not for me. I did not like being called upon 
to sing when somebody wanted me to sing. And I think that a lot of that leads to the excesses in in show business now. Because I didn't always feel like singing. So to be coerced or forced into doing something, when I would just rather lie in the grass and look at the sun, look at the stars, you know. Well, you weren't coerced. I mean, you were being paid, right? Yeah, it's not but like not a whole lot. I mean, it's and the compromises that you had to make. It. I had come too far in making my own identity or carving out my own identity than to uh, be to compromise myself for the sake of singing. It just wasn't something that I could bring myself to do. Absolutely could not do that. I love that we're having this conversation, Mother. I mean, it's not like I don't know these things, but it's just, I don't know. I am learning some things and having a lot of realizations. I'm like, oh, it's going to give me so much to think about. (laughs) So I, you know, you're definitely the person who I consider to be my my biggest influence in life. So this morning I was writing in my gratitude journal as I try to do every day. And um and I think you know that I, I keep a gratitude journal for people who are listening. I keep a gratitude journal and I write down five things a day that I'm grateful for. And it can be like very, very varied things. Like sometimes it's like, oh, you know, my plant is doing well. Or I mean, <laughs> you know, a particular plant. I have a lot of plants. Um, or like breakfast was good or the, you know, the weather was perfect. And sometimes it's, you know, deeper things. But today I was like, I'm going to do today. I'm just going to write about my mom. And, um, you know, mother... Whenever I post about you on social media, I always use the hashtag Mama Jackpot because I really do feel like I got lucky. I'm like, oh man, so lucky, so lucky. So, okay, so here are five things that um, came to me today. I mean, I could go on and on, um, but these are the first five things that came to me this morning um, that I'm grateful for about you. And so the first thing is that you're extremely loving and caretaking. You're like a natural born mother. (laughs) You're just so good at taking care of people. Wow. I'm blushing. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I mean, I think, I guess you, you just, I mean, that's just who you are. You've always been like that, huh? Pretty much. Yeah. Which is actually considering the fact that you're the youngest of nine, it's unusual for youngest children to be so caretaking of other people because usually youngest children are the ones who get taken care of and you know can be a little bit more spoiled and I say this as a youngest child (laughs) (laughs) I wonder I don't know I guess see I always think you know people always you know and and for years have asked me do you want to have kids do you want to have kids and you know I've just always felt like I just don't think I have it in me to be the kind of mother that you were. And I just feel like that, you know, it'd be one thing if I didn't know any better. (laughs) And I'd be like, sure, advocate. But I think back and I just think of like the enthusiasm you had for your children and for just like doing things with us and going places with us. And, you know, I don't know, baking a cake or just all these things that I'm like, oh God, that just sounds so exhausting. I just... I just, but I wonder, um, when I was, when I was a kid and I was growing up, did you think that I would grow up and get married and have children? Well, in the sense that this is what is normally expected of your uh, offspring or anyone that they will grow up and have a family. I think you sell yourself short when you say you don't think you could be a good mother because I've seen you with children and babies and you have an absolute inner drive to care for children. I really think you sell yourself short. You may not see it, (laughs) but I see it when I see you with other children. Hmm. that you're very good at that and you're very natural with it. You can do it with seemingly without thinking about it. Yes. So um, I don't know if I influenced you in that way. Or <laughs> you just have this inner engine that drives you in that way. Mm. Or sometimes when I think when, when a person, the way they behave is how they want people to behave toward them. Mm. So that could be an instance also. Yeah. But I think you have uh, very good instincts with children. And and thank you. Thank you for saying that, Mama. I appreciate it. And I actually, I do love children and I do know that I, I do feel like I'm a natural with them in terms of relating to them. And, you know, obviously, you know, I have so many children in my life who I, I love, but in terms of, I, I think one of the reasons why I can have, I can have, you know, children that I'm close to and I, and that's great for me is that because they're not mine. <laughs> 
You know what I think? You know what I think? I think I would be an amazing parent to a teenager because you're at that point, it's like we can, I, and I know most people like don't like teenagers, but I actually like them because I'm like, you know, at that point, you really know who you are as a person. And I mean, even though you may not be able to fully articulate it as a teenager, and I think that's part of the, the job of the adults in your life to really help guide you to discovering like who you are. But I think it, that that stage is one where the autonomy of a ch- of a teenager is I can deal with that. <laughs> like, but when I think about being a, a parent to young children where you have to do everything for them and they're so dependent on you and in order to really be a good parent, you've got to prioritize them so much. And I just feel that I am too, and I don't want to say I'm too selfish of a person because I don't think I'm the most selfish person. I, I, you know, I think I'm, you know, whatever I'm giving, I try to be, I mean, I'm kind of selfish, but, um, <laughs> but just, I don't know that that just feels really overwhelming to me, but I don't know. I, and I have so many people say to me, they're like, your mother would be the world's greatest grandmother. You got to give your mother a grandchild. <laughs> she just, it's such a waste for her not to have a grandchild. I'm like, all right. She's got a, she got kids in her life that she's, they consider her grandma. So don't worry. <laughs> she's fine. You're fine. Right, mother? I'm fine. Right. I am totally fine yeah. with it. <laughs> Totally fine. Um, I lo- and I, yeah, I also love never ever had pressure to have children, which is another thing that I really appreciate about you. Okay, so and the other, okay, number two, you have a strong sense of self, and you modeled that for me really well. So I, I think I never felt. I think I, I always had permission to just be myself. I never felt like I had to try to pretend to be someone that I wasn't or into something that I wasn't. Like, I think I always felt very accepted by you for who I am. But I wonder for you, knowing how your parents, especially your mother, was not the most accepting of others, right? She wanted things the way that she wanted them. How do you, like, what do you, what do you think that it was within you that was able to really resist that pressure from her and to really just, I don't know, know yourself? I um, have thought about that at some point. I've even tried to go back in time and, and think about the dynamics between my mom and me or my parents and me. I think one of the things is that when my mom was suffering with Alzheimer's for a while and, and my sister was caring for her, I went down to relieve my sister for a week, you know, and my mom could only remember me. And she said, oh, Joyce, let's go shopping, you know. And it was that kind of thing. I thought it was very, at the time, it, it was sort of curious to me. And then I thought about it. And I said, the things that she did, that she wanted to go somewhere, I would accommodate her. And I think that took some of the pressure off her harshness toward me is that I really did sort of, it was almost manipulative in the sense that if it was somebody she wanted to visit and I go, oh, I don't want to go visit them. I said, okay, I'll go. Interesting. You know? So I, I really do think that that's how I survived. Mm-hmm. And was able to, I guess, survive in, in Leroy, Alabama. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like you gave her enough of what she wanted that you were then able to protect the rest of yourself. Yeah, I, that's very well put. <laughs> but I, you know, I've thought about it many times and I go all the times that, you know, I dragged me along somewhere and I absolutely did not want to go, but I put on a happy face mm. or a pleasant face and I did it. And people always said, oh, Joyce, you're so lucky you have Joyce and she's just wonderful, you know, and, hmm. but it was uh, putting aside a part of me to get a part of me, <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. It it does make sense. Wow, so interesting. Okay, I want to I want to get through these. I want to go through these kind of quickly, but I want you to hear these. So next, I have that you are very proactive and adaptable. And what I mean by that is like when something is not working, you've never been a person to just complain about things. You've always been like, all right, this isn't working. So what now? Like, what do we do now? How do I fix it? I took for granted that that was just how you how a person was to approach life like that's just sensible like fix it you know (laughs) and you know I this is something that I definitely I just I'm so grateful for you for having this quality because this is something that I've definitely inherited from you so I just want to personally thank you because you're welcome Because what it is and what it showed me was that even though it took me, you know, I've been through it, but like it, I've been through all my own, my own shit, but it took me 
it allowed me to see that you have some control over your life. Like there are a lot of things that you yes. don't have control over that happen in life, but there are things that you do have control over. And those are the things you need to focus on. Like you need to focus on, you know, taking the steps, doing the things that you can and not spending all of your energy worrying about things that you can't control. I remember, you know, this is a classic Joyce Hoagie line is used to say this all the time when I was growing up <laughs> that you're like, I don't worry because if, she, if worry changed anything, I would be the world's greatest worrier, but it doesn't. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, you, you said that so many times and I just, I, yes, I, I just appreciate that. It's like very like pragmatic, which is also related to the next thing on my list, which is that you are very calm and level-headed. Yeah. I don't know where I got that from either, except that I just feel why worry. <laughs> Who me worry? Yeah. 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 Do do you think like growing up were you the calmest person in your household? Yes. I'd say yes. No, actually I was not. I think my brother Sam was oh, probably the yeah, calmest. Probably Uncle Sam. He was very calm. Uncle Sam was very calm. I probably was the second calmest. <laughs> yeah. Well it's funny. Yeah, he had music and you had music. I wonder if that helped. It might have. I wonder. Hmm. So interesting. I've been thinking, oh gosh, I have so many things to talk about. Okay. Moving on. Next. <laughs> Well, okay, I'll just say it quickly because that's annoying that I started to say something and didn't finish it. But I was thinking a lot about I have been thinking and I did actually a podcast episode recently. The last episode is about creativity. And I've only kind of recently started to understand the importance of creativity in just happiness because everyone has a creative, we're all creative in some way, right? And I think, you know, I grew up thinking that I wasn't creative and I thought that for a long time, but that's because, you know, my brother was an artist and I just, I felt like I can't draw like my brother. I can't (laughs) sing like my mother. I don't, you know, I'm just not a creative person and whatever. But so that was a story that I had for a long time, but I think that everyone is creative, but there are a lot of people who don't ever tap into that or really cultivate that creativity because they don't see themselves as being creative you know what I mean and so when people have a talent like you did or your brother did for music that it's really helpful because then it's kind of like everyone can see that and let you indulge that but this kind of but then there's everybody else who they have talents and they have creativity too but they might not have an outlet for it and that is just going to diminish their sense of well-being I agree I agree people need to be able to see a creative interest to appreciate it and that's very unfair fair because yeah they're not always visible <laughs> it's so true it's yeah it's it might take some digging you know but it's it's there's something there yeah oh, there's always absolutely. something there so interesting oh gosh mother okay <laughs> last one and this is i mean they're all kind of well they're not totally re- i mean they're all related but this one is that you are you love and you accept others for who they are i don't find you to be the kind of person who you don't spend a lot of energy wishing people different. I think you accept people for who they are and where they are in their lives. And would you say that that comes from, you know, what you were saying before about treating people the way you want to be treated? Absolutely. You know what? I think it's something within me that I I really didn't think consciously about it. But if you go back and review it, it is exactly the way I would like to be treated is the way that I treat other people. I don't want anyone to judge me. I want them to take me for who I am and accept that. I mean, full acceptance is the key as far as I'm concerned. Mark's friend who lives in Vancouver sent me a message the other day that she was cycling along the water and she thought of Mark, who frequently comes to her mind when she's cycling. She's a seconds later, two tall guys on super tall bikes zipped past me. And she said it felt just like for a minute that Mark was riding with me. She said my eyes welled up and then I smiled broadly. That's really sweet. So for those of you who are listening, my brother was super tall. (laughs) Wow. That's really sweet. That's very special. Well, I have one more question for you, Mother, because I could literally talk to you all day. (laughs) I have 5,000 more questions. but, But one more question, and this is a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and 
that is okay. if, if you had a megaphone that was loud enough for the whole world to hear and you could send out one message about love, what would that message be? That message, hmm, that love is the most reciprocal type of relationship one can have. Say more about that. In a um, relationship, you should be able to give and receive. And that works for both people involved in a relationship. Right. In any kind of relationship. Any kind of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. If you if you have a relationship where you're, you're doing all the giving or you have a relationship where you're doing all the receiving, then... It's not love. You're really selling yourselves short. It's, it's not love. It, you can't even equate it with love. There's no way. Hmm. Wow, that's deep, Mama. I gotta think about that. <laughs> that you can love a person and begrudge a person. They don't jibe. Hmm. Interesting. I'm thinking about the people who, and, and, and like I said, this is all types of relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about people in all types of relationships where they might be the person who does most of the giving in particular, because I, that's just a more common scenario that I encounter. The people that I know and sure. work with tend to be the ones who are doing more of the giving. And I think what you're saying, it, it's not that you don't actually love that person. It's just that if you're not able to receive, I think that's just, you're not able to love yourself enough to receive it. Well, that too. But I think love is, is a misnomer there because you, you're mistaking love for something that's much deeper. Oh, what's deeper than love? <laughs> Well, a need that that person has. I mean, you say, I love this person, but you're really saying, I need, I'm a needy person. So I do all these things in hopes that that person will love me. Hmm. That's not rational because you can't coerce someone to love you. Well, that's certainly true. It it has to be, can't force it. It has to be an absolute natural feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm Got to be absolute. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be a few things that you're going to tinker around the edges, but you've got to have that basic feeling that you're giving and receiving and receiving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I dig it, mother. I'm all about giving and receiving. So I love it. I try to give. I'm I'm good (laughs) at, you know, I was actually thinking about that lately because Dan is my boyfriend. For those of you who are listening, you know, he takes such good care of me and I, and he, he's very, you know, like literally he's like making me dinner and bringing me my plate and then I'm done eating and then he's like clearing my plate for me and and so there are times that I'm like I don't know if I have this level of I don't I mean I want to make it sound like I, I'm just sitting around and he's serving me all the time because trust me <laughs> that's not this is one this is one example okay but I just think like man he's so good at he's so good at uh you know acts of service like you know taking care of me doing all these things for me and I, I mean it's just not I receive it very gratefully like I don't take it for granted you know Mm -hmm. and I definitely you know give to him in other ways but I think about that I'm like I hope I'm not like is he doing too much I don't know I think about that sometimes (laughs) Um, but then I have to clean up the crumbs and I'm like you know what he's not doing too much (laughs) he's not doing too much yeah. <laughs> Mama, I love you so much. I love you too, sweetie. And um, and, and I'm going to say something to you that you always said to us when we were kids, which I just appreciated so much, was not only do I love you, but I like you. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> I like you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much for that. Because that, that really is important, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. It really, really is. It's goodness. It makes life easier. And I hope that for anybody who's listening, you know, maybe you don't have the best relationship with your mother or your father or, you know, just there's there's lots of challenges there. And and listen, this is nothing is perfect in any family, including ours. (laughs) Right, mother? (laughs) Right. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Definitely no perfection. But I guess one thing that I hope that people can take from this conversation, especially because there are ways that you have chosen to show up in your relationships that were a conscious decision 
to do what you didn't have modeled for you. You know what I'm saying? So like in terms of like we were talking about, like the acceptance, like accepting people for who they are and not judging them. And, you know, just that's not something, you know, you grew up in a, you grew up in a household where that was, it wasn't about acceptance, right? <laughs> it was about compliance. Do it and, or don't, do it or die. Yeah, exactly. It was about compliance. And even though you grew up with that, you still made a different choice for yourself and your own life. And I think that that is, and I have those things that I grew up with that I've had to make a different choice. Sure. And that's just part of growing up. And I think hopefully maybe this conversation can spark some people to think of some things in your life or your family dynamics that, you know, didn't serve you and didn't work for you and may have been really painful for you. But you just know that you're not, you don't have to be a slave to that. Like you can, you can actually break free from that and make a different choice for yourself. And that's what I hope that people get out of this conversation. Yeah, it's a part of maturity, you know, because when you say growing up, you know, you ostensibly you're talking to adults, but yes. this is maturity. May you mature. Yeah. I'm still growing up. <laughs> <laughs> you mature in the way you, you tackle issues. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. I love you. I'll talk to you later. Thank you again. And there you have it. My conversation with my mother. I hope that you enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I got to say this was this was the first podcast episode where I actually cried. I cried a little bit. I cried a little bit when she was talking about um, my brother. And um, that was, yeah, that was emotional, but it's all good. You know, I think when when people meet my mom, I think they definitely understand me a lot better. And they're like, oh, I get why you've got some like poise about you. I'm like, yes, it's completely inherited. (laughs) I can't take any credit for it. So I hope that you enjoyed listening to my mother as much as I do. I could have kept going for hours and hours, but hopefully that was just the right amount of time. So for those of you who have not yet rated the podcast, if you are enjoying it, then I do invite you and encourage you to just give me a little five-star review. I'd appreciate it so much. And also if you're moved to write a review, not just rate and write a review, then obviously... I appreciate you even more. That's a beautiful thing. And also I wanted to, you know, just make sure that you guys stay in touch with me. And so there's a few ways to do that. Number one is just social media. And that is I'm at Dear Franny and at Dear Franny Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I'm also at Dear Franny on Twitter. That's number one. Number two is that you can go to my website, which is FrancescaHokey.com. And on my website, you can read my blog. You can listen to old podcast episodes. You can sign up. You can can take my free dating archetype quiz and there's different things you can book a free session you can book a pay what you can session so there's lots of information on my website so do check that out also I have a I have merch I have merch now guys so you can go to dear franny shop com dear franny shop everything is dear franny just making it easy dear franny shop.com and you can just find your new favorite like t-shirts and sweatshirts and cool stuff so check that out and then last but not least i also have a text number for you guys a phone number so you can text me at this number no calls but um but texts please 323-402-6863 that is 323-402-6863 text me and you know this is a u.s phone number regular U.S. phone number, but your normal messaging and data rates will apply. So just be mindful of that, especially if you are outside of the U.S. And again, that number is 323-402-6863. And it's this app called Community. And basically, I can just, you know, we can text each other. And so every now and again, I'll just text you a little, a little, you know, it could be a just a little message of encouragement or a photo or an announcement or something like that. But um, I encourage you to sign up one last time, 322 Two three four zero two six eight six three. All right. Have a beautiful day. Stay safe and healthy wherever you are in the world. Wear a mask. And for those of you in the United States, please make sure that you register to vote and check your um, voting status because the election is coming up in 99 days and your voice matters and we need it. So thank you. Have a beautiful day, guys. Bye.